Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're listening to The Korea File. I'm Andre Goulet. The Korea Files, a monthly podcast exploring Korean society, culture, and politics, and highlighting critical, independent voices you won't find anywhere else. On this episode, traditional Korean homes have become victims of a recent onslaught of gentrification in Seoul's Iksundong and Bukchon. But as these old residential neighborhoods become a haven for hipsters and young urban professionals, the unique cultural footprint of an important aspect of Seoul's history is being erased. Here to tell us more is Jihoon Suk, a PhD student in Asian languages and cultures at the University of Michigan and a keen observer of cultural heritage in the metropolis. Jihoon, welcome to The Korea File. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So as gentrification liquidates the cultural capital of Seoul's heritage neighborhoods, I want to take a moment to sort of investigate the legacy of these neighborhoods. So tell us more about Bukchon and Iksondong. So the Bukchon and Iksondong areas, um, basically a modern, I mean, when I say modern, of course, it's like um, post-1876, and mostly um, I'm referring to the colonial era. So the, uh, these areas were residential areas developed in this time period, particularly after the 19, late 1920s all the way up to about the 1950s. And this used to be, Bukchon and Nixandong areas used to be like, um, used to have been occupied with these big stately homes uh, of the Joseon dynasty, mostly with higher, um, higher court officials. But uh, as time went on, these houses disappeared and what um, eventually uh, filled up the space was all these newly developed areas uh but instead of building modern like uh when i say modern is like of course western western houses in this area they um, decided to build up um, more cheaper to produce hanok but although of course um, much more modernized than like in you know quote unquote traditional houses so a lot of these houses um do show this very peculiar mix of you know tradition like so-called traditional building i mean building techniques but also some modern uh, appliances as well so it's quite fascinating in that regard and of course as the city grew uh, the modern city grew in the first half of the 20th century and of course later on uh, these areas tend to um, like had put a lot of important and interesting people living in the area it's also one of the few areas in the and the, the old city like areas that still has this sort of like a more or less traditional looking views of uh, of the area uh, like of the residential areas and 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 so the the neighborhood was left largely these neighborhoods were left largely intact during the war um yes for some reason because a lot of time and most of the, of the actual battle was was actually in the city center which is actually slightly far away and rarely did they actually, I mean, I don't really think any of any parts of Bukchon, especially uh, places like Kahedong or Chedong or all these smaller um, like uh, neighborhoods, I don't think they were actually um, like 
you know, affected by the war at the time. Well, and, and so now these neighborhoods have been turned into kind of like um, destination points for, for younger people, let's call them in, in Seoul. Uh, hipsters is, is, is sort of a derogatory term that some people like to use to describe the kind of clientele who are visiting now the sort of more modern uh, cafes and uh, bars or th- things like that in in, uh, in Iksondong and, and Bukchon. Um, but the remodeling process that a lot of these businesses have uh, went through for converting these hanok, uh, it's pretty invasive, right? So, like, I'm sure you've been to these converted heritage buildings. What can you tell listeners about what that remodelization process looks like? So, of course, I can I can go on lengths for hours about this. the biggest problem about these uh, remodeling processes is that even though they have generally have good intentions to like in a way to preserve them for their own purposes. The big problem here is that not many people, in fact, hardly anyone who is actually going through all this process doesn't really know. I mean, they just don't really know much about the Hanoks themselves. They just don't know how these things are put together. And because of that, they just, instead of having all these, um, you know, um, beams and frames, and you know columns or like all these um like all these structurally important i mean structurally important parts of the building integrated part of the building parts of the building they um cut off a lot of these sections and uh, replace them with modern um h beams and or glass windows and glass walls or like things but of course these things just, just doesn't really hold up well with these structures right well and and one of the most popular hipster cafes in bukchon um actually played a crucial role in Korea's modern political history, which is kind of why it seems even more tragic that this building has been kind of gutted and uh, turned into a modern a modern building. So tell us more about this building. Uh, who was Han Haksu? So Han Haksu was, um, um, uh, was a wealthy landlord, um, quite a famous person who also owned the, uh, who was a famous who was most famous for being the um, being the grandson of um, Han Kyu-seol, who was uh, one of the few um, cabinet members who opposed the uh, the signing of the so-called USA Treaty of 1905. Uh, we, uh, of course, pe- many people who would listen to this uh, podcast would know, would know that um, that treaty, of course, was uh, effectively um, stripped off the, uh, the the diplomatic rights of Korean government to Japan. Han Haksu, uh, besides being the grandson of this important figure, historical figure, he also was a wealthy landlord, and he was also an educator, and um, you know he had a fairly fascinating life. But also, uh, as we will talk about later, um, some of these, uh, like he he uh, he and his his particular, I mean, like particularly his house, played a quite an important role. And you've you've talked about the real historical significance of the house, and it can be traced to that sort of post-independence era that you're, you're beginning to describe here. So it was a gathering place for well-known independence activists and leaders living in Bukchon, uh, sort of maybe some of the elites of that time. Uh, tell, tell us more about that. So as I said earlier, uh, after the Bukchon area was developed, uh, these were fairly um, like middle, uh, middle to upper class homes. I mean, they were not necessarily um, for, you know, like um, low class individuals or anything. These are definitely like middle class, like uh, residential area and because of that a lot of prominent figures um politicians um i mean uh, you know national national lead, i mean you know national leaders independent activists or all these people all these learned people wealthy people and politically uh, like um, active people were gathering um and were like gathered together in this area just you know living in this area since the late um i would say I mean, and since the very beginning of this you know creation of Bukchon area in the, in the 1920s and 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happened, well, of course, was that uh, in right after the liberation took place in August, August 1945, Han Haksu basically opened up his house because it was quite a convenient place. Uh, it was right next to a big road, and it was right next to a big school, which is the site, which is now uh, like uh, the Hyundai headquarters is <laughs> like um, occupying that site. But there was a there was a big um, school there, which was uh, frequented as a public ga- a big public gathering place. And as many people, many of these leaders, as I said, lived around this town, like this particular like blocks. I mean, they literally lived in you know in just in a couple of blocks within. So um because of that they um Hanaksu like um generously offered his house to be these meeting spots for a number of these leaders, political leaders and to create their like um a lot of these political parties including the uh, Korea Minjudang, the Korea Democratic Party which is basically the first um party uh in Korea that had the name uh, democratic um like within the actual like uh, name of the party. Besides that, there were many other like uh, political gatherings, at least two more like um, political meetings to create a um, like a political parties, uh, uh, respectively. And um... well, and so so like hearing you sort of describe uh, this this interesting time in this in this building's history makes it easy to understand why preservationists and and historians in Korea are experiencing a sort of like mounting sense of dread and alarm about the changes happening to this Hanok among a lot of others in the neighborhood. So I like I imagine listeners of this show are probably pretty aware about the really urgent need for heritage conservation in Korea because at, at times it's maybe been neglected uh, in the country. Uh, so Seoul's city government actually appears to be interested in engaging with the issue. In fact, uh, this summer's announcement that the city would create a list of traditional houses that could receive architectural heritage designation for their historical value by June of next year seems promising. Like, it seems like a good step forward. But but is this sort of pledge from Seoul City government coming too late to affect much change, do you think? Yes, I think I'm afraid to uh, to say that this is a little bit too late to do this kind of like uh, actions, actually. And um, for one thing, of course, the, the house we just talked about, of course, it's not only it's quite historically significant, it also is um, quite significant in its own architectural like um, like legacy, because it's one of the very few surviving bigger houses like that was located in this area. And uh, and sadly, as I said, it was completely gutted out and uh, much of the original inter- uh, integrity and then much of the interior was completely destroyed. Uh, not only that, this is not the first time that Seoul city government had this sort of like this policy, uh, this it, like planned this kind of like um, actions to like uh, to preserve some of these traditional houses. This is not the first time they started doing the first time they actually did this was in 1977. And uh, they did ex- uh, designated a number of houses, but um, half of these houses are in ruins now. And there were like uh, many other uh, instances, like uh, more smaller scale ones that um that the city tried to keep up some of the some kind of like a list of like more or less important houses and all that but the problem doesn't really um doesn't really go up it goes with the um the actual policy and how ineffective they are i think the bigger problem here is that um they have like the whole notion of how they actually understand hanoks to be they have this very fixed notion about what hanoks should look like and but as i said much of these ho- uh, houses in pukchons and all these uh, different places in part different parts of seoul there are mostly late 19th and early 20th century creations and they do effectively have some modern appliances applied to these things as or, or like when they were 
were first built. But most uh, Korean, like, um, Seoul city officials wouldn't actually understand that part. Instead, they will just have this very fixed image, um, very generic, generic image of a Hanok, how a Hanok should look like. And uh, even if they actually, you know, do something about these houses and try to restore them, um, it's actually doing more harm than good. Well, so as like besides the uh, Han Haksu home, there's another one that you uh, spoke about recently in an interview you gave to the Korea Times. Uh, you talk about another unusually large Hanuk at Iksondong 155. Right now, it's both a restaurant and the site of Chosun Sungak Yongguhe, a vocal music group. You describe this building as the the sort of origin point for Pansori, the uh, the, the traditional song performance is that right? Yeah, yeah, it is. And um, so, Chosun Song Yongguhae, this organization was uh, was first organized in 1930. Uh, it was a different it was a different name back then, but effectively, what it was is basically um, it was ostensibly a guild for um, like uh, for all, all these number of um, like traditional musicians like they call them old-fashioned musicians a lot of these people just um just uh, figured that uh by the early 1930s they needed to you know like organize some sort of like a you know guild to organize themselves so that they can actually more effectively um more like theatrical engagements or other like um like uh, other activities related to their performances and a lot of times most of the prominent members there were many other type, many many types of different types of um, traditional like uh, music that was involved within this group, but the most prominent members of this group was basically um, the big Pansori um, performers um, who made their names since the early 1900s. And so they bought this house. They used this house as their kind of like or um, their like headquarters. And what they mean by that was that not only they had all these performances, they also had um, dabbled in businesses, especially with theatrical engagements or um, radio broadcasts or like uh, radio uh, or record um, like recordings. They also like um, had it was basically sort of like a um, conservatory in a way because they also had many younger um potential uh, potential singer musicians who just uh, they would just have them in this place and uh these play these you know like students quote unquote um would live in this uh, live in this you know large um like house with all these big masters and um they would just like uh, like sing and practice day and night and uh and of course they became the members of uh, of this organization as well later on and you have to realize that all these big um uh, pansori singers today are literally um like almost like um 90% of them all um they are literally just pupils of these people who were like uh, these younger members of the Joseon Songang Yongguwe in the 1930s. So mm-hmm. you have this whole like um, genealogy of um, Pansori performers all directed to this particular organization. Well, and so I mean, this speaks to the sort of this speaks to the sort of tragedy of of these these buildings of cultural value being maybe permanently lost. And 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 so it sounds like you're saying that the city's engagement efforts to preserve cultural treasures is is like too little too late. So what will what what will what will the city do when the hipster Hanuk cafe trend is is over? That I can't say anything for certain because I honestly don't see any like um, hope in this regard. Unfortunately, if the whole like um ten, like this trend carries on like this way, because 
Of course, uh, a lot of these houses, uh, a lot of these, uh, as we just talked about before uh, earlier, these remodeling processes are just so invasive and, you know, it really weakens the structure. And effectively, um, after, you know, being used for a number of years, it's just like the buildings just wouldn't stand, like uh, stand the test of time. And, you know, these are already old structures because of all these invasive things that they do with it. It's just, you know, it's not going to last. And after that, they will just raise it to the ground and build another uh, new buildings. In fact, it's actually happening right in the uh, right in the middle of Yixandong right now but again there's like you know both all these both the hipster like uh, cafe owners or the city government or anyone or even the landlords who who actually would you know rent these houses to them like to these uh, hipster cafe owners like they just don't have any mindset for the long-term preservations at all. Nobody does. Yeah, because of that, I think <laughs> it's so difficult to talk anything um, about what will, what lies in the future of these houses. Okay, that's that's brutal. That's brutal. But thanks a lot for kind of illuminating uh, that that sort of that that situation for for us. Well, and I, and I want to move on now to a sort of topically adjacent issue of cultural heritage, and this is a uh, this is the topic of the temporary opening of Sugnangwan, a small private garden in a residential area in Songbukdong, which is a neighborhood in the north part of Seoul, last April. And the opening of this little garden created a total media frenzy. The Cultural Heritage Administration designated it a scenic site, and the publicity launch was dense with language like disclosed to the public after 200 years and one of Korea's three greatest traditional gardens. It was uh, in another recent conversation that you had with the Korea Times where you kind of debunked the hype. Uh, What can you tell us about that? Yeah, debunking is the right word in that thing, uh, I think. So I already knew about the the true history of this particular garden, this particular estate, Um, like all that, like back as long as as early as 2006 believe it or not but i didn't actually bother to talk about this at all for anyone because largely because this was completely disclosed uh, like completely closed off for the public and it was a private um like property nobody could actually go into but you know now when i saw all these you know big media uh frenzy going through all that um going through uh, going about this particular uh, estate i my conscience told me uh, like to do something about it so um mm-hmm. basically uh, what i what I showed them was uh, that all of the buildings that they um, have in this estate, like in the garden, first of all, much of the garden, like structures, structures of the garden is not old. What I say is that um, the whole estate, as we see it, uh, the Song Wan estate, as we know it, it did not exist in this form until 1961. In the old days, in late Joseon period, there were some prominent people who actually had their estate and probably a garden or so, uh, maybe some summer homes and maybe in this area, in the site, but none of these things exist. And uh, and all the structures and the garden and everything uh, is a modern creation. They have little, little to nothing to do with uh, the actual like historical figures who lived in this uh, like in this spot, and the whole point of creating this estate in 1961 was that they wanted to create a big um, tourist hotel, a modern tourist uh, tourist attraction, and a hotel intended for the uh, all these American troops and the UN troops like um, to stay and have fun. But that business scheme went, I mean fell through. It didn't. It never materialized. So what I, what you're doing, what you're dealing with this, you know, state is effectively um, 
1961 creation that had um, very little to do with actual history, um, like on the spot. Yeah, I'm happy your I'm happy your conscience piped up and uh, and uh, sort of sort of pushed you into into doing uh, doing the the right thing in in sort of casting some light on that issue too. Well, so like after talking for 20 minutes here, it's not going to surprise listeners to hear that you've played the role of a history guide in in uh, walking tours in Seoul, both with the Royal Asiatic Society Korea branch, the RASKB, and also independently. So uh, I understand that some years ago, you gave an architectural tour of the abandoned red light district, Chungyangni 588. So what was what, what about the architecture was was unique and, and, and interesting in what was just essentially like, like a, a sprawling a sprawling you know a couple city blocks of of empty empty you know rooms <laughs> so um yeah i mean when you know like let me tell you something so when i like um made my announcements to do this sort of, sort of like a tour many people kind of like you know gave it gave this look you see uh, because this is not some place that you would necessarily have this sort of like an architectural, like, you know, cultural tour of any kind. It doesn't really come like uh, right close to it. But um, before now, of course, if you go to the area, it's completely, I mean, like raised down. Like, I mean, there's nothing left in there. It's There's this uh, big um, uh, redevelopment plans going on right now in the spot right now. But um, what I found that's so fascinating about this particular area was that it actually had um, a very distinctive, um, very distinct, like three different, uh, three different um, layers, you might say, of um, different time periods, different uh, manifestation of this area. You're starting with um, some of the older structures, uh, mostly hanoks, that were um, probably intended to be built as, you know, like uh, brothels, even uh, like even this early in the early 1930s. And so, at the very bottom of this, uh, like bottom of this area, you have these uh, number of hanoks that are clearly built for that um, purpose in the early 1930s. And later on, um, on the on the western side of the section, you have much more recent. Uh, you had more much more recent structures, maybe dating from about late 19 uh, mid to late 1950s and 60s, when this area became. For the first time, like um, became known as the Red Light District officially, mm-hmm. and after that, um, in there were like the uh, the closest side to the the modern railway station, the Tongyangyi Station. Um, they had more recent buildings that was clearly built in the 1970s and late uh, and later. So, you have three different um, like layers or strata of you know different um like buildings and um and how things were developed and how like um life was like you can tell a lot of things about it besides of course um you know like what was going on um like that is you know known to the public about all these um you know prostitution and uh, all these you know things going on at this time so yeah that was quite uh interesting of course but that's not of course that's not um the only like um tours i gave i gave a lot a lots of other tours i mean palaces like historic sites and all these different uh small scale and uh, i i'm happy to say that i had a fairly large turnout for most of these um events and uh and i'm i'm really grateful that uh, many people did actually show up to my tours and um you know showed showed quite a lot of interest on that sure and I, and i've i've heard that they're they're extremely fascinating and so so i'm curious like of of any tours that you've done independently, in, including the Chungyang Ni 588 tour, or, or any or any tours you've done with the RASKB that are maybe more traditional, uh, dealing with sort of historical neighborhoods or, or architecture, uh, over 
the last couple of years, which one's been like your favorite? Which one do you actually like enjoy giving the most? So I uh, I gave a tour. I gave the, I gave this tour for the um, like for RASKV. Uh, I think a couple of years ago, um, 2016, I believe. And um, uh, it was about these. Uh, it was about this place, and like uh, it was basically um, north west side of the um, Seoul, where not many people actually had an eyes on. Um, starting wa- starting from like the uh, Changi Moon or Taha Moon, as they call it, and going through um, different parts of the uh, this air area where it's literally filled with so many different historic sites, but which of, uh, most of which are not known to the public, even to the Korean people. So yeah, it was quite fascinating. And, and in fact, me and a friend of mine um, uh, actually wrote a little book called the uh, Through the Gates uh, Through the Gates of Violet Glow. And you can actually purchase it from Amazon, but uh, so that's a little bit of a like um, promotion here. Well, that's that's really that's really interesting, and it just makes me it kind of reminds me that um, you know what I love about about walking tours, like historical walking tours from from someone who's really well versed, is it's like it's like there's a there's a magic to it, right? Just like revealing hidden secrets, revealing ghosts um, of of the past, and so I, I just love that that the RASKB does this, and and I'm. I'm I really appreciate that you're quite successful in in really communicating with the guests who who join you on these tours. And so, Jihoon, as we begin to wrap up, I, I wanted to talk for a minute about your your focus of academic research at the University of Michigan, uh, because it concerns the study of cultural history of modern Korea, which is post-1876, and the role of modern, that's non-textual media like sound recordings and films and broadcasting in the creation of this notion of Korean national and traditional culture in the first half of the 20th century. So how did you get interested in this kind of fascinating but but usually or often overlooked aspect of Korean history? I always liked, I always, I always loved music and, you know, like watching films and all that. And I also dabbled in all kinds of other like hobbies. And of course, I also collect records, I collect films. And I, when I say collect films, I'm not saying I collect DVDs or anything, Blu-rays. I'm collecting films on like eight millimeter films. I also realized over the course of my, like uh, my, like pursuit of like doing history. I mean, history was, I mean, Korean history to, to pursue I mean, I do all kinds of history, but I like Korean history is my thing. And, you know, history was always my passion, a big, like, you know, like go in my life doing this, uh, like studying this. Um, like I have been doing this since I was seven. Like over the over the course of time, you begin to realize that, you know, all the things that you just take for granted, like all these traditional things, like, for instance. So imagine um, someone from like pre, uh, pre-modern Korea. And the first thing you you come to your mind is a person wearing a cot, the horse, like a horsehair hat, and the turumagi, the white, um, like this kind of like a robe that, you know, everybody wore. That's the thing. Everybody did not actually like wore these two things. Hmm. Like there were so many different variants of hats and, you know, like robes and clothing that was so much like, like, uh, like, you know, like just all over the place. Um, like throughout much of the Joseon dynasty. In fact, if you read uh, Isabella Bird Bishop in her in her book uh, Korea and Her Neighbor, she actually calls the uh, the country. She also refers to the country as the hat country because there are so many different types of hats. Hmm. But whatever became of these hats, right? Uh, be- uh, gradually, I got I started to have this you know like uh, this particular question in my head, and of course, and it just kind of struck me that um, especially in the early 20th century. 
of course, there were lots of scholars and, you know, academics and, you know, like uh, writers who wrote about, you know, Korean culture and, you know, uh, its characteristics. But the easier way for them to uh, propagate the ideas about, you know, how a Korean tradition, a Korean tradition should be or should look like or should, you know, like, you know, sound like, uh, these things uh, were actually were like um, propagated through the me- uh, through these means of you know non you know textual media like as I said sound recordings and um, films like radio broadcasts and all kinds of different things and surely I realized like slowly I realized that a lot of times a lot of these people who were involved in these production of these materials sound recordings films radio broadcasts TV broadcasts they are literally just handful of same people literally. These group of small like people, mostly educated in Japan or like your or elsewhere, I mean foreign countries, and most of them dabbled in like theatrical businesses or all these different things. They also have like you know newspaper background as well. So like you have this group of individuals who had um, you know you know fairly I mean who use who like use their like um, knowledge and insights to produce these um, like uh, media. And to propagate their own vision and their own ideas about um, Korean culture, and of course that became eventually became the framework of how we understand the few, uh, like the past and the tradition and national national culture, if you want, if you might say. So um, yeah, that's what I'm primarily doing. It's that's it's so it's so fascinating. And, and but as we come to a close, I want to I want to get to one last thing, which is that you you actually traced the early history of recording music in the country to Western scholars in the early 1890s when Thomas Edison's phonograph came to Korea and patrons of this phonograph included the likes of King Go Jung and actually also RASKB founder Horace Allen and you yourself actually have a machine for recording sound onto wax cylinders. Is that right? Tell me more about that. So, I, as you probably saw, that uh, there's a whole lecture video of me doing uh, like a lecture about early sound recording histories, uh, like of, in Korea, in like for the RSKV. Uh, and I do, yes, I do have a machine, a phonograph, an Edison standard phonograph that uh, that can that you can record, um, you know, like wax cylinders. I mean, the good thing about one thing interesting about Edison cylinders at the time it was not meant for not just meant for the playback. You could by just swapping, you know, one part, you can actually record on it, just like cassette tapes back in the day. And of course, you can actually, um, um, you know, shave the cylinders and record more. So it's literally just like um, cassette tapes. Um, but so I um, I have demonstrated the uh, the process, and of course uh, that's I mean that sort of way of recording someone you know like on site and just play it for like for the audience was probably the earliest um, yeah earliest ways of Koreans using uh, this new like you know media format when it was first introduced in 1890s. And then and I said I I also collect records and all that and uh you know I do I have been working on like early sound recordings of Korean music or spoken words and uh I also happen to find I like happen to have personally found some of these unique copies of these um early very some of our earliest commercial recordings of um musical recordings of Korean music. Um, made by um, the American, you know, like Victor and Columbia companies, 
And uh, so um, I'm still on, I'm actually working on reissuing some of these things uh, in the future on a CD. Much of the remastering job and everything, like I'm also a big audio guy, as you know. Yeah, I've been working on this and much of the, uh, like, um, through the help of many others, I we managed to like uh, finish remastering of some of these recordings, and uh, hopefully we can get some <laughs> funding for reissuing the CD in the future. That's so cool. Come come back on the show sometime and talk to me about this. Talk to me more about this sort of like modern archaeology that that you you uncover with with your with your not just research but also probably going to like dusty dusty flea markets and and the like. Um, it's it's so interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, and, yeah. and Jihoon, just last thing, where do you see the research that you're doing taking? you in in 2020 and and over the next uh, the next the next years well it's kind of difficult to tell of course you know i'm just beginning my second year as a phd student here so i still have what um like literally three more years and like almost four years uh, exactly because it hasn't started yet you know like uh hopefully i can like raise more awareness about um like how like the notion of korean culture and the way we understand korean culture came to be that might you know that might also like benefit us uh, like overall to like um to have more uh, nuanced and more um you know um in-depth uh, like detailed understanding of how you know the notion of nationhood and uh, national culture came to place. Everybody knows about, like a lot of people knows about, um, like Eric Hobsbawm and invented traditions and all these different like uh, things about um, like the like the, the creation of nationhood and nation, uh, national culture traditions and things. But uh, we, I mean, no one, spe- uh, so far as I can tell, hardly anyone um, specifically studied the Korean case in this regard. So um, I really hope that I can make some <laughs> improvements over that. Jun Suk is a PhD student in Asian languages and cultures at the University of Michigan and a keen observer of cultural heritage in Seoul and around the country. Jihoon, thanks a lot for speaking with The Korea File. Again, th- uh, thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to episode 86 of The Korea File. Hear my other work on Canadian politics and society on the Unpacking the News podcast with Ricochet Media. Look for it on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Andre Margoulet. Music on this episode is courtesy of Creative Commons. The Korea File is a monthly podcast exploring Korean society, culture, and politics, highlighting critical, independent voices you won't find anywhere else. And the show is produced and hosted on a volunteer basis. Contributing just a few dollars a month at patreon.com slash thekoreafile helps to keep this show on the air. Your support covers hosting fees and the hours of production that go into creating a research-heavy show like this. Help us reach 20 monthly supporters, and I'll be able to begin releasing bonus material and outtakes from the interview. We have um, six supporters as of August 2019, so support from listeners like you guys is critical and allows the show to continue coming out consistently on a monthly basis. Become a monthly patron at patreon.com slash thekreafile. Find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes, Spotify, and rate or review the show wherever you subscribe. It'll help new listeners discover the show. I'll be back in late September with the next in a series of collaborative episodes with the Seoul-based Korea branch of history and culture organization, the Royal Asiatic Society. Until then, I'm Andre Goulet. Thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.